Good evening, everybody. A very, very, very warm welcome to the London School of Economics uh, on a warm and wet evening. I'm really pleased that uh, so many of you have turned out for uh, tonight's uh, event. My name's Charlie Beckett. I'm the director of POLIS, which is the media think tank here at the uh, Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics. Um, I'm very, very pleased um, that we've got the support tonight of the Media Society and their new president, David Walter. I'm also very grateful to Linklaters for uh, supporting this event as well. Um, I'm very, very pleased to welcome back Jeremy Hunt um, because this is the third time that he's done uh, a talk for Polis, his first time as Secretary of State. And what an extraordinary brief he appears suddenly to, to have. So there's a huge amount to get through tonight. What we're going to do, um, the legendary Raven Snoddy, uh, media commentator par excellence, will be interviewing uh, the Secretary of State for about 45 minutes. And then we'll go to open questions from the floor. So there will be an opportunity for you to put questions to the Secretary of State yourselves. And I do hope they're pithy. Uh, and reasonably brief so that we can get through as many as possible in the time that we've got because we have to finish Raymond at 10 to 8 please so we're going to be as quick as we can and on that note it's over to Raymond Snoddy thank you sir Jeremy Hunt Welcome. Well done. Well done. I thought I've been practicing practicing it all day And in a similar heavy vein, have you noticed any attractive, bubbly, giggling young women turning up at your constituency offices recently? Uh, I have, and I told them exactly what uh, I say uh, in public as I do in private. So one thing, unlike your colleague Vince Kibbelin. But, but Well, Vince, I think what, what happened to Vince has been a warning for us all, and I think we could all... Um, fall into that trap. But just as you got my name right, uh, let me just tell you this, that um, after that particular interview on the Today programme, I got a very generous letter from Jim Nocty. Um, the least you deserve. And, <laughs> and uh, I then became the only member of the Cabinet who knew that the next time I appear on the Today programme, the interviewer will actually be more nervous than I would be. <laughs> Um, but anyway, Jim kindly invited me to a nice lunch, which I'm hoping to have sometime in the next few months, which I shall the jocular, thoroughly enjoy. The jocular reference to Vince Cable. When did you know that you will be responsible for deciding on the largest media takeover, I think, of British history? Was it at a cabinet meeting? Did the Prime Minister call you? Where were you when you suddenly found out this poison chalice was about to drop into your lap? Um, I was uh, that day having a Christmas lunch with my staff. Um, and uh, we were getting ready to wind down for Christmas and then I got back from, from that lunch and then the events of that afternoon started to unfold um, and you know, I found out later that afternoon Was it David Cameron called you? Um, he didn't call me um, but we, I had discussions through his, uh, his team as to whether that could be a route that we went down and we had various discussions and then that was decided Does history, can history record what your initial reaction was? Um, OMG <laughs> you're, you're doing the uh, deliberately polite version before this, uh, this audience jo- way way joking apart uh, this is a huge huge decision that you have to take did you have meetings today you or your officials with anybody from News Corp or News International this very day well I 
tried to set expectations before this evening's uh, discussion. Um, this is a quasi-judicial process, and as a result of that, I can't say anything about uh, what is happening. I'm in the process of making a decision. I haven't made my decision yet. But it is a quasi-judicial process, and I have to strictly follow due process. No, and that I, I means that I, what I can't do is give a running commentary on who I've met with at what stage. And, and the very simple reason for that was if I started to do that, um, and indeed the drinks this evening are being sponsored by Linklaters, and they will know well that um, it, it would be completely against the public interest sure. for me to do anything that would open up the risk of judicial challenge. So unfortunately, yes. I'm not going to be able to give you um, any anything substantive tonight over that process. I, I, I do understand, but it's my job to try and persuade you to dig a rather large hole for yourself, if I can press it. Possibly <laughs> <laughs> um, I, will, I will read you uh, a letter uh, from the chairman of the Media Select Committee, which may have to be a rhetorical statement in view of what you've just said. News Corporation have informed us that they are now unable to brief the committee on Wednesday, i.e. today, because they expect to be fully engaged with the Ofcom report and with confidential discussions with DCMS. There will therefore be no committee meeting on Wednesday. So it sounds like you did meet people from uh, News Corp today, or your, or, your, or your officials. Are you a Faulty Towers fan? I am indeed. Do you remember what Manuel said? About I'm sure you're about to remind me. <laughs> um, well, I can't quite say I know nothing, but I can say nothing, because I'm afraid we have a judicial process, and so and, I'm and, sorry not and, to be able to be more don't helpful. Don't worry, I'm not going to try and be like some tuppence hateley substitute um, of, uh, of, a, of a Newsnight interrogator. I won't ask you 14 times, only about four. Okay, uh, well, we've had one, so... Well, uh, yeah, ooh, maybe five then I'll need. Um, process. You can talk about the neutral matters of process. This is a public interest test. Normally with takeovers, the whole responsibility, as you now must be aware, lies with the Competition Commission. Apart from, I believe, setting gas prices for some curious reason, they decide if you refer. Um, but on this occasion, they don't. Uh, they only can recommend. One question that strikes me, if, and we're only talking hypothetically, if it goes to the Competition Commission, and they don't recommend remedies, have you got the theoretical power to come up with remedies of your own or not? And I'm not trying to fish for an answer in the sense of outcome, just the due process. Yeah, I'm afraid I uh, can't get drawn on what that process is. I'm really sorry. You've but really been frightened by uh, the lawyers, haven't you? No, I mean, I just, this is a decision that is likely to be judicially challenged by the side that is disappointed with whatever... I say, and as a result of that, I have to do everything possible to make sure the process is totally legally robust. What, what I will say is I'm yes. focused now on the decision that I have to make as to whether to refer this to the Competition Commission um, and not uh, what might happen at a subsequent stage. Uh, can I ask you about your um, reading habits? Ah. Have you ever read Michael Wolfe's book, The Man Who Owns the News? No. Can I thoroughly recommend, uh, in the spirit of helpfulness, that as part of this due process, you read this distinguished book? Um, well, I've noted what you said, Ray. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Now, I'm afraid we're, we can't let you off quite as easily as that. Um, in a way, it's a slightly broader question. You strike me as being on the cusp of being a human being turning into a politician. <laughs> where where most, of you, most of you is emphatically still a human being. 
and your, your fate is probably to become a fully professional politician. But uh, but but before you, can before I say that it's the nicest thing anyone has ever <laughs> said to me in an interview? I, I now feel a complete, you know. Bastard for not answering any of your yeah, questions, yeah, yeah, but um, I, anyway, not, thank you. For, I, I'm not. Can I'm we not, stop now? No, no. <laughs> I'm, not, not, I'm not naive enough to think that people, link letters or their equivalents are probably to within an inch of your life. No, I'm interested in the difference uh, between someone who's not in office and someone who is, and in particular, some of the terrible bollocks you, you said before you got into office. Um, do you sort of look back with some regrets on some of the, some of those uh, wild statements you made? Um, well, I'm quite sure which the wild statements are, and I've certainly made. I would uh, consider tearing uh, up the BBC's Royal Charter, a document invented in 1926. I haven't seen it being torn up. Okay. Um, well, let's. Let me just first of all say that I am certainly someone who's made my share of gaffes. Um, but the particular comments that you're talking about, if, if we're going to talk about that one, yes. Um, in fact. Uh, the journalist who uh, interviewed me is, is, is sitting in the very front, front row. row. He did a good job, and, of you, didn't he? And, um, the, the context, actually, another time as well. Um, but um, the context of his comments were a discussion about reforming the governance of the BBC, which I have always said that I wanted to reform. And um, the, what I hadn't appreciated at the time of the interview is that the governance arrangements for the BBC are enshrined in the BBC Charter. And so, uh, therefore, any discussion about whether you're actually going to proceed with uh, changing the governance arrangements at the BBC, uh, you need to decide if you're going to change the charter before the renewal of the charter, which is due in 2016. And at the time of the interview, I hadn't made that decision. Subsequent to that interview, uh, we decided that uh, we would leave the charter as it is um, until the proper renewal time, and so we said we wouldn't renew it. So that was the context. Indeed, I will be talking to you about the BBC, but just before we leave um, one of my favourite uh, media surprises, Holy Alone, um, remind you of some of the things you said before office, I think, certainly before you got the onerous responsibility, and you may want to leave this just hanging in the air, but I have to put it in the record and remind you of it. Would it broadcast? Would it matter if Rupert Murdoch owned two TV news channels in Britain? The important thing, said Jeremy Hunt, the important thing is not whether a particular owner owns another TV channel, but to make sure you have a variety of owners with a variety of TV channels so that no one owner has a dominant position both commercially and politically. And here's the bit that's raised a few, subsequently, posthumously, has raised a few eyebrows. Rather than worry about Rupert Murdoch's owning another TV channel, what we should recognise is that he has probably done more to create variety and choice in British TV than any other single person because of his huge investment in setting up Sky TV, which at one point was losing several, several million pounds a day. So you're a big fan then. Well, let me just say this. Um, you've taken my comments about Rupert Murdoch, but I think you should properly also have taken comments that I said about the BBC. I've described it as the crown jewel um, in the British broadcasting arena. I've, I've said that I think it is probably the most respected news gathering organisation in the world. I've made very generous comments about ITV. I've made very generous comments about Channel 4. And you know, what is amazing about uh, British broadcasting and our British media ecology is that we don't have one, we don't have two, we have uh, nearly half a dozen world-class broadcasters and they all compete 
like hell, and that delivers a fantastic deal for viewers. And I think it is fantastically important for the political process as well, because uh, it means that there is a huge variety of views that come forward. So, yes, I said those things, but I think you have to keep those in the context of the, what I've generally said about other broadcasters if you're going to make a proper judgment about uh, my own views with respect to uh, any issues that we're debating at the moment. And certainly the Cabinet Secretary, in reply to a formal complaint from the Labour Party, cleared you as being a fit person to take this decision. Indeed. I hear rumours that a certain amount of chaos is, 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 is happening in your department at the moment. The arrival of people from Fizz, and it's a different culture, and heaven forfend, the rumour is nobody quite knows what they're doing. Any truth in that? Um, well, I don't think so. I mean, no, um, when you move a function in government from one government department to another, there is uh, an amount of negotiation that happens between the two departments to actually decide which, of, which employees it's going to involve. And, and the move hasn't happened yet. We've been having those discussions. Um, I think for all of those officials, it's business as usual. The guideline usually is that a decision is announced by you, as it happens in this case, ten working days after the Ofcom report is received. That would be in about three or four days' time. Will you be ready? I will be taking my time over this decision. As soon as I'm ready to make the announcement, I'll make it. Um, but the most important thing is that I make the right decision and I follow due process in doing so. This is the sort of decision dumped on your lap which could actually make or break a political career, isn't it? This is a very, very hot potato, and I'm aware of what happens if you hold a hot potato in your hands for too long. Yes, I don't deny that. Can we assume that the decision will be announced sometime next month? Uh, I'm not going to say when I'm going to announce it, but we'll be following, strictly following due process uh, in uh, the way that we come to that decision. I absolutely believe you will. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Right. Um, other people may want to, to ask you fiercer questions on the subject than I, but that will be later. In a way, this one is still in the headlines, rightly so, because of its scale and enormity and implications, at least in question for a plurality of media in the UK. But the thing that interests you most of all is local TV. Why, in the name of God, does that excite you so much? Well, um... <laughs> I'm afraid, you know, you, Ray, along with a lot of the sort of London um, broadcasting intelligentsia, uh, are very much out of step with the non-London parts of the country. I am a localist. I believe passionately in devolving power to the local level as much as possible. And I think it's absolutely crazy that a great city like Birmingham, a great city like Sheffield, uh, don't have their own local TV stations. Right, as we were saying, why would an intelligent person like you attach so much of your credibility to local TV uh, when <laughs> you, like, you, like, you like the idea, who wouldn't, but there's no evidence in the UK of it ever being financially viable? I believe that the leadership debates in the last general election transformed that election for millions and millions of people. The ability to see the people who want to lead your country up close and personal. Now I think that local democracy is as important as national democracy but it is unbelievably weak in this country and we are all the poorer as a result of that. 
London has benefited enormously from having a mayor, and I pay tribute to the last government for um, introducing that. Um, but I would like to see um, more directly elected mayors, and I would like to see much more local involvement in elections. And having proper local TV in our great cities, and indeed in our counties and throughout the country, is one of the very best ways of getting proper local accountability, involving people in local decisions, and I think it would massively add to the richness and quality of life for millions of people. I know, not quite as, uh, not quite as legally scary as the, um, as the least I'd be decision, but you're not ready with final announcements, and indeed they're expected at the Oxford Media Conference next Wednesday. But can you can you here you can tell us a bit about process. Are are you going to let at least a number of different options run, at least in terms of proposal, or are you looking for proposals and will then pick a winner nationally? What sort of options are you looking at? Um, well, I think the the way that local TV works in countries that have successful local TV is it's usually not commercially viable to broadcast 24 hours a day. We had a brave experiment in Manchester with Channel M, um, and they found that they couldn't make 24 hours a day local TV commercially viable. What happens in, in most countries is that local TV ha operates for a few hours a day, two, three, four hours a day, perhaps breakfast, early evening, late evening news, and the rest of the day the programming is taken from a national network. So to make this work, I think what we'll need to do is, first of all, uh, create a national spine, uh, which is a, a national anchor network, which broadcasts national TV, has national advertising, but agrees that they will allow local carve-outs. And then as a second stage, we will then allow people to bid for local franchises in the cities or areas that they live in. There are rumours about that some of the usual suspects have started to smell money and are started, starting to show an interest belatedly as in Sky, as in ITV, to challenge Channel 6, which has put forward a proposal for just the sort of thing you have in mind. Um, are you looking for new operators, or will you judge it on, on its merits, wherever those proposals come from? Um, well, first of all, I would be absolutely delighted if people are smelling money in this, because what I'm told by uh, people time after time is that there is no money in a this, and it can't be commercially viable, and yeah. I never believe that to be the case. But um, the answer is we will absolutely make this decision on its merits. What we want is to nurture a proper local TV network in this country, and I think that it, this isn't just one local TV station. I think as we move to IPTV, over the next few years, there'll be potential for you know a, a Middlesbrough Sports Channel or a Birmingham Arts Channel. I mean, there'll be lots so you are of looking potential. For different uh, different things and absolutely things in different parts of the country. Absolutely, let a thousand flowers bloom. Okay. Now, um, your merchant banker advisor Nicholas Shart uh, said, he, at least initially, he only saw room for about ten or twelve local stations and major conurbations. Um, quite a sensible character, Nick Shart. You basically accept his underlying premise? Well, he did an enormous amount of detailed work. Um, he said that he thought it could be viable, provided the government met certain conditions in, in 10 to 15 cities. We will meet those conditions, but we aren't going to say that it can only happen in 10 to 15 cities. And if yes. there are cities outside the top 15 where people come forward and say they want to set up a local TV uh, operation, then we will allow them to do it. Now, the former Director General of the BBC, Greg Dyke, made a speech in York either yesterday or the day before. And he, had, I don't know if you saw this, he made a direct appeal to you personally. 
he said, for Culture Secretary Jeremy Hand, it's time to be courageous. Uh, was he <laughs> was he joking? Do you think? Sorry, it's time to be courageous. It's time to be brave. And he th he he dragged uh, out things as room for maybe eighty hundred local stations in places like York. Uh, do you tend towards the shop view or the dike view on the whole? Well, actually, neither. Because what I want to do is to create an environment. These uh, local TV stations aren't going to be top-down business. That would be completely counterproductive. They are going to be bottom-up, driven by uh, local newspapers, local community groups, local organisations. And so I want to create a structure where there is a space for those organisations to set up their own TV channels. So um, it may be that Nick Schott's right, and that it's 10 to 12. It may be that Greg is right, and it's 80 to 100. We're going to create a structure that would allow either to be true, um, but we're not going to prescribe how many they are, or what they are, or where they are. Depending on which models you accept, are you worried about, maybe not, professionalism or otherwise? I mean, at one stage, before you were in office, you were talking about, well, maybe volunteers could come in. I mean, volunteers are nice, but it's not going to be quite television news as we know it. Well, this is where I think we have to change our thinking and not say that, uh, you know, the culture secretary or uh, the chief executive of Ofcom determines how local TV looks in every single city, in every single part of the country. It will be different. This is local TV. Um, but I do think it's important that um, if it takes off, it is high quality, and I want to create the financial environment that makes that possible. And the only thing I would say is that if you go to uh, cities in America, big ones, small ones, what you actually find is contrary to the image most people have of local TV, a lot of it is actually extremely good quality. And I think it's quite possible that we could do the same thing here. Um, your, your boss, the Prime Minister, again before office, was talking about cutting down Ofcom to a much smaller version of, 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 of what it now is. Is this another job for regulation for Ofcom, making sure that decency and standards of a minimum nature are observed on your local TV uh, plans? Well, it's Ofcom's job, and it will remain Ofcom's job, to make sure that we have decency and proper standards throughout our broadcasting sector. Um, and I think that's a very fundamental thing that, uh, whatever else people may say about Ofcom, I think people in the country want Ofcom to defend standards in broadcasting. Yes, so, so regulators aren't going to fade away, like, like the state under communism is supposed to? Not when it comes to taste and decency, no. Okay. Now, one of the most dramatic things, uh, Murdoch may be the most dramatic thing for uh, 2011, the most dramatic thing of last year, most emphatically, the settlement uh, with the BBC. Uh, I have been covering media matters for a very large number of years and I've never seen anything like it. First of all, there was a plan, negotiations about a license fee settlement, then the BBC was going to have to pay for the over 75s, then that seemed to go away, then it was resurrected by George Osborne at, cabinet, uh, at the weekend cabinet meeting, it was going to be imposed on the BBC, all hell broke loose throughout Westminster, you changed your mind two days later. I mean, what sort of government is that? Well, um, I think we are the government that actually ended up with a superb BBC licence fee settlement. We ended up with a deal that is extremely good for the BBC 
and it's extremely good for the license fee payer. For the license fee payer, we ended up with a deal where the license fee is frozen in cash terms for six years, um, which I think is welcome news to many people who are counting the pennies at very difficult times. For the BBC, uh, we ended up with a deal where they are committed to making efficiency savings of around 16% of their budget over a six-year period. I think that's very manageable. Um, but I think it tackles the concern that some licence fee payers had about the way the BBC used licence fee payers' money whilst protecting the core of what the BBC does, which is its investment in great content. And I think the things that people love about the BBC, whether it's Strictly, Come Fly With Me, Rev, Sherlock, those things are going to continue. We protected that in our settlement. But I think we've tackled uh, the concerns people had because the BBC will like... Uh, everyone else uh, in the public domain now have to make economies. The results may or may not be a good one, but are you not even slightly embarrassed about the chaotic process, late night meetings, policies changed almost in 24 hours, one minute it's BBC paying 500 million for the free licence fees for the over 75s, the next day they're not. I mean, it's almost well, random government, isn't it? Well, you, you're speculating about a process, and what I will say is that you know, there are always fluctuations in any negotiation, but I think we ended up with a fantastically good result. So I think the process worked, and I'm very, very proud of the settlement we got. And just in case there's any, I don't think there any of the demonstrators are left, um, I can happily record that Mr. Murdoch and all his works was not happy, were not at all happy with what you did. They expected it, they expected and wanted a much smaller BBC from you. Indeed, and uh, indeed. Um, the Murdochs have never agreed with the principle of the licence fee, um, and we always have supported that. So I think that's yes. a pretty significant area of difference. But before the election, there was the assumption that BBC had got become too big, that really what was needed was um, a detailed investigation of what the BBC was for, how big it should be, what its range of services should be, and in the mad rush to cut the public service deficit, none of that happened. Isn't that, isn't that a worry from your point of view? Uh, no, because uh, technically this was a discussion about the licence fee. It was, not, it was a discussion about funding for the BBC. It was not and was not allowed to be a discussion about the scope of the BBC, which is decided by the BBC Charter. So that is discussed... The Charter you didn't tear up, right? The Charter that we didn't tear up. Yeah. Uh, that is being discussed in, in 2016. And as it happens... The licence fee deal that I agree, one of the good things about it is that it's now coterminous with the Charter. So um, in 2016, the then Culture Secretary will be dealing with both subsequent licence fee and renewal of the Charter. So there will be that opportunity to discuss the size and scope of the BBC. Does that mean, because it's coterminous, that it's highly likely that you or your successor will take that opportunity? It's almost time. For, for, for not, not, uh, not in the pejorative sense, but just enough time has passed and enough technological things have happened for a full and thorough survey, perhaps even a royal uh, in commission inquiry into the future of the BBC then. Well, I don't know about a royal commission, but full a, commission, and, a full and thorough survey, absolutely, that has to happen. That's what happens when the BBC Charter is renewed. Yes, yes. And will you be around for that, do you think? Oh, that's something that uh, I really can say I know nothing because uh, <laughs> that's a very long way away. <laughs>
partly re repetition, but I'm so interested in the process. What did negotiating this settlement, where the BBC got its frozen license fee for six years, the trust that you appear to be going to abolish um, is renewed for six years, the BBC takes responsibility for paying for the World Service, most of the Welsh Fourth Channel, BBC monitoring. What was that like on the inside? What did it appear like to you? Well, um, I've never conducted a negotiation like it. Um, and, no one uh, has. No, um, and, you know, it was uh, through the night stuff. Um, so I, you know, probably at LSC they do courses in negotiation and, and uh, you know, the sort of the way our political system works is that usually ministers don't end up having done those courses before they end up plunged into these negotiations. What I did was I had a list of what I was hoping to get from the licence fee discussions, which I... Um, Did you get most of what you wanted? And I got, I think I got 80% of what I wanted, so I was pretty happy with the outcome. What were the, what were the 20% you didn't get? That I'm not going to discuss, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe for another day. Maybe for another day. You probably noticed today that, um, uh, that um, Michael Lyons, the chairman of the BBC Trust, sent a letter to the Director General on how um, their strategy, future strategy and indeed paying, living within this licence fee. And two things leap out from the usual sort of tedious language. Um, it's our intention to appoint an independent advisor to test proposals for cost cutting, savings from the BBC cost base. The implication is there that savings can be made and two, they should be independently tested. It's not your business anymore, but presumably you'll approve of that. It sounds an excellent idea. I mean, you know, there is a, a broad understanding over the licence fee negotiations that uh, you know, generally that 16% saving would be done through efficiency savings and the BBC I think the reason I think the BBC agreed to that unprecedented cut in their licence fee was because they recognised that they too like all other bodies funded by the public need to look differently at how they do things to see if they can do more for less and you know I'm going through that in my department, arts organisations are going through that and so is the BBC and so I think this is a reflection of the BBC starting that process. Have you any interest in the next four years or so in how the BBC spends the money or is that a matter that's um, delegated to the trust and the new, the new chairman that's appointed? Uh, that, that what I'm talking about is um, the current chairman says he wants BBC One and BBC Two and the popular radio stations of one and two to be more distinctive in their use of the licence fee. Do you have any thoughts or any problems in that area? Well, um, I have a great deal of interest in what the BBC does, and from time to time I reserve the right to speak up if I think that uh, they are out of step with what I believe licence fee payers want. But I don't have any power to direct the BBC what to do, and nor should I, because I think one of the most important things about the BBC, one of the things that the public value the most about the BBC, is that it operates at arm's length from politicians. I mean, heaven help us if I was deciding uh, what appeared on the TV schedules. My wife is Chinese, and when the Culture Secretary in China is a very, very important person, because he's the Minister for <laughs> Propaganda, and he decides what appears on TV. And I, 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 he wouldn't <laughs> have a bunch like that in, would he? And, you know, thank heavens for the British people that I, I can go nowhere near those decisions. But, um, so I do have an interest in it, of course, and from time to time I speak up. Um, as an advocate of the licence fee payer, but I think it's absolutely right and very important that I should not be in any way uh, deciding what the output of the BBC is. Some of your predecessors in the past have got involved. Um, the 
ITV program of Death on the Rock, Gibraltar. Mrs. Thatcher uh, complained publicly about giving the oxygen of publicity to terrorists. There are different times, and luckily there's not quite so much domestic as in as an IRA terrorism. Do you ever do you ever foresee a time when you might have to intervene on those grounds, not matters of taste or judgment, but on matters of security? <coughs> Well, I think through your colleagues in the Home Office. So, I mean, one point I would make is that Death on the Rock was broadcast. So Mar- Margaret Thatcher complained about it, but it was oh, broadcast. And, you know, and the, you know, the BBC constantly broadcast things that, that drove her mad. And you know, that, is, that is what happens in a free society. You have, a, uh, you have a, a national broadcaster like the BBC. And I think this is one of the reasons, incidentally, that the BBC is respected the world over, is that there is a recognition that it operates at arm's length. And I would simply say that I hope that all broadcasters would behave in a way that is responsible and recognises uh, the concerns of national security because, you know, that's a very, very important part of their public social responsibility. The trouble is defining what's responsible and what's not and in whose interest. Of course, that's, that's never easy. And, uh, but, you know, what I think is important is that they exercise that because I, as a minister, am not exercising control over what they broadcast. In a way, you've cleared quite a few of the decks. Uh, the BBC, there'll always be a crisis. There's always a crisis in the BBC. But in a sense, there's a six-year done deal. Um, Channel 4, you said you have no interest whatsoever in privatising. You have no interest in intervening with public aid. They're free to get on with it. Is that more or less a, a, a precise summary? Uh, well, what we want Channel 4 to do is we want Channel 4 to compete with the BBC in those parts of the broadcasting market that are not commercially viable. The ITV provides strong competition to the BBC for you know, big Saturday night entertainment um, and the commercially viable stuff. But Channel 4 is a public organisation, um, again operating at arm's length from the government. I think it has a duty to provide competition to the BBC in, in other areas, and that's why Channel 4 documentaries are important, things like dispatches are important, Channel 4 news is important. That all adds to plurality. I doubt it will happen, but if um, the chairman of Channel 4 came to you and said, sorry, we really can't afford uh, Channel 4 news anymore, would you have any... Could you intervene to get something done um, about that? Well, they would then be in breach of their public service broadcasting obligations, so Channel 4 actually wouldn't be able to do that. Um, So there is a a structure in place. Okay. Okay. Happy with the state of ITV? Is it doing what you, uh, as a hands-off minister, wanted to do? Well, um, you know, ITV is a private company. Um, It's been through a very difficult patch. Um, I wish it every success under its new leadership. Um, And I think it's in all of our interests that we have strong, a strong BBC and strong competition to the BBC. And I think that in that way we get that magic combination of innovation, choice and quality, which is what I think <coughs> the viewers want. It, it, it may not be the largest decision you took, but a lot of people would say the most bizarre one you took was to close down the UK Film Council. What? Let's, let's first of all ask about the way you did it. Uh, there was no discussion, no consultation, <coughs> no detailed look at alternatives. Um, and again, a, a, an example of random government rather than thought out policies? Question? Um, the decision was taken in a short space of time, 
and uh, another another all night session. Uh, and it wasn't an all-night session, but it was taken in a short space of time, I, I grant you. It was the right decision. Um, I was not at all happy with the way the UK Film Council was running. It seemed to me to, to typify uh, the kind of quango that was being run in its own interest rather than in the interest of the sector that it was serving, huge numbers of people on six-figure salaries and so on and so forth. But that could have been dealt with by... Changing well, the leadership. My, that, well, that's, and, my, that's my point. You could have said, look, 20% off the, off the overhead, so we close you down. You gave them no, no stay of execution. You but, just announced they were being closed. Surely that's not a very wise way to behave. But there was something fundamental. There was something fundamental that they were getting wrong, which is why I believed that uh, their responsibilities needed to be discharged by a new organisation. Uh, there are, I think, essentially two big jobs um, in British film. One is to make the UK an attractive destination for inward investment for Hollywood blockbusters to encourage the big Hollywood studios to make their films in the UK. Um, that's actually been pretty successful. The Film Council uh, were involved in that and they should take some credit and our film studios are full. Um, but there was another responsibility uh, where I believe that things have been going very badly wrong and that is the nurturing of a UK independent film sector. Uh, we have the biggest uh, independent television sector in the world, hugely successful. That has sadly not been replicated in film. And um, our independent filmmakers, we've, we've slipped in the last, I think it's the last three or four years, from being behind France to being behind France, Italy and Germany in the size of our independent film sector. And that is crazy, because we are um, a... a pivotal part of the English-speaking world. There ought to be a huge opportunity for British independent filmmakers to grow and to grow to a significant size, and I think that we need uh, to use lottery money to make sure that we can nurture British film and make sure that we have a good stable of British independent filmmakers. That wasn't happening, and I decided that we therefore needed a new organisation to focus its energy on that. And yet this totally moribund organisation managed to invest quite successfully in the King's Speech. How many Oscars do you think that film's going to win this year? Well, th they had um, some successes, I don't deny that. But if you look at the overall size of the British independent film sector, it has been um, contracting, it's been getting smaller, and that's a problem that I think we need to address. I mean, film, like TV, is different because it is incredibly important culturally. Uh, for us that we, that we have um, homegrown sectors in those areas and so that's why I thought it was a very important issue to address You've killed off what existed however flawed can you please tell me what is going to replace it and before your time I can remind you of the last time the lottery bodies were given the task of investing in film production through the arts, through the, uh, the arts council every single one a turkey, every single pound wasted. Is there not a danger, because you did no prior preparation, the same is going to happen this time? Well, let me say what we're not doing. You say that I've torn up the existing structures. We protected the film tax credit, which is the single most important thing. And then in organisation. Yeah. But the film tax credit, at a time of huge pressure on public spending, costs the taxpayer over £100 million a year. That's been protected. We are increasing by um, several millions of pounds the lottery money because of our reforms to the lottery that is going into film. So the actual investment in film is going up, not down. But what we weren't happy with was that 
the amount of money that the Film Council was using on administration and bureaucracy and its success in delivering key objectives. So what are we going to do? Uh, we've said that the responsibility for distributing lottery funds will go to the British Film Institute, the BFI. Um, they have said they're going to bring in uh, new management to exercise that responsibility. But I think it's a, it's a very well-respected charity. It has currently the responsibility of looking after it. British Film Archives, and I think they will be an excellent organisation in discharging the, the very, very important job of nurturing an independent film sector, using lottery money to help that happen. Another, and I'll stop in a moment to enable questions to, another important policy of yours is, um, is bringing high-speed broadband to the entire nation. Uh, how can you do that? And where are you going to get the money from? Well, um, We've done a huge amount on that, and, and let me say uh, there are two reasons why this is important. Firstly, um, because although 30 million adults access the internet every single day, there are still 9 million adults who have never accessed the internet at all. And those people are losing out massively as society becomes more digital. So there's a huge uh, social equity <coughs> issue. But there's also a huge growth issue. Um, Nestor estimate that a high-speed broadband network in the UK could create 600,000 jobs. And these are jobs in industries and sectors like telemedicine, home education, that we can't possibly predict. Um, but it's a huge opportunity for us economically. And given our success in broadcasting as a nation, I think it's a huge opportunity for us. What have we done? Um, we've increased the amount of public funding uh, going into high-speed broadband from 200 million to just under a billion, I think it's 830 million, uh, through um, getting a commitment from the BBC to invest uh, 150 million pounds a year in the new licence fee settlement. We've announced rural superfast broadband pilots uh, in Herefordshire, uh, North Yorkshire, the Highlands and Islands, and Cumbria. Uh, we have announced plans to make the Olympic village uh, into a new East London tech park after the Olympics and we've already signed up some of the biggest uh, internet companies to come and put their headquarters in that new tech park so I think that will be hugely beneficial and we've, we've got commitments from companies like BT to match every penny of public money with investment of their own so I think we've made pretty good progress but we've also given ourselves a very high aspiration I've said that I want Britain to have the best superfast broadband network in Europe by 2015, and that's going to mean that we're going to have to up our game very significantly. Is there any empirical evidence linking high-speed broadband with economic development? I once put the question to Lord Carter at the time he was launching his Digital Britain, and he also was a person who wasn't wholly a politician and therefore quite often gave honest answers. Uh, he paused and thought for a moment and said... No, it's more of an aspiration. Can you prove? Can you prove that um, uh, it might help rural areas? But does it actually lead to economic development? Well, I can only say what, what other people say. I mean, the Federation of Small Businesses think 200,000 jobs. Uh, Nesta thinks 600,000 jobs. California, uh, which is an economy the size of, of England's, uh, think it'll create them 2 million jobs. Um, so we can't know, and the reason we can't know is you look at the current generation of broadband, no one predicted that that would transform the grocery sector with you know, Tesco, Ocado, Sainsbury's online, and so we don't know what those jobs are. 
so it's but, worth doing. But we can be pretty sure, uh, like the building of the railways, um, the building of, of any great infrastructure, that it's going to be fundamental to our economic success in the future. Finally, for me, this is slightly uh, off of piste, but you are a cultural minister. And this did appear in the BBC News magazine recently from Alain de Bottom. You may be aware of this. And uh, he says, uh, anyone working in the humanities in academia right now, talk to them. And you will hear that this country is about to enter a new dark age. The reason lies in the coalition government's decision to impose swinging cuts on almost all departments. Philosophers, historians, classicists, and literary critics feel especially badly let down. They fear a new age of philistinism, a moment when the nation finally gives up on serious culture and focuses instead on making money and inebriating itself of talent contests and celebrity chat shows. Is there a real danger and a real point there? I would say quite the opposite. Um, a country to be successful needs more than anything else to invest in its higher education sector. It's unbelievably important, and that's why we need... Um, institutions like LSE to be world-class. They are world-class, but uh, you know, we've got a handful in this country. There's probably uh, not too many literary critics or classicists here, though, to be honest. No, but I mean, I, I, I read philosophy at Oxford, and, you know, and I think humanities are incredibly important, and they need to be properly funded. And the reason for this very, very tough and difficult decision the government has taken is because we needed to find a solution that made sure that we were properly able to fund our higher education institutions to be world-class. And it's very difficult because that costs money. And then you have to ask the next question as to where that money comes from. But I believe we've come to a solution which is more progressive than what we inherited, but will also mean that our academic institutions are able to invest to get the very best professors in the world and able to deliver all the things that Alan de Bottom wants. If these people turn out to be right, and uh, this is creating the, the start of a new age of philistinism, uh, once the public sector deficit has been brought within reasonable grounds, might you revisit this area? Well, we're not entering a new age of philistinism. In fact, um, if you look at uh, my area, culture, and what happened in the spending round, uh, when you take into account the lottery changes that we made, spending on the arts is going to go down over four years by 11%. That's you know, a couple of percent a year. And most major arts organisations say they think they can manage that. So we are recognising the extraordinary importance uh, of a vibrant cultural sector to our country. So uh, that's not going to happen. Um, but the truth is that culture, the arts... All the things that we are proud of as a country do depend on a stable, growing economy. And if we didn't take the difficult decisions that we've taken in our first eight months in office, then all of that would have been put at risk. The bigger risk would have been not to tackle the economic challenges that we face. Jeremy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, uh, also, Thank you for your patience in not calling it a day and leaving us without, without our main entertainment. <laughs> uh, questions? Oh, lots of will be here all night. Okay, okay, look, let's, let's start at the front and I'll get to as many people as possible. This, this man here, say who you are so we know your prejudices. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes, and, uh, we'll have this one and then we'll try some grouping some of the questions. Right. Uh, in perhaps the four or five areas, yeah. main yeah, areas. Sure. But, but uh, you've had first go, so you go, sir. 
Uh, Nico McDonald, uh, Chair of the Media Futures Conference, as I guess I've made people aware, former student of this institution, where we did ask ministers difficult questions, including Douglas Heard, rather than barracking them. Uh, <coughs> and he was much more unpopular than you are or ever, ever will be. Yet, yet. I don't think you could be that unpopular. Um, You've been, we've been mainly talking, although we alluded to broadband at the end, about old media, and it's clear that any new technology platform uh, facilitates new media forms, and that people are looking for new ways of uh, new media forms and new ways of engaging with and sharing uh, media with one another. Uh, and it, in a way, media is fragmenting, which I think is a challenge for local television, apart from anything. Um, I, Typically, in any kind of media revolution, you find that the players who are dominant in the future are not the ones who are dominant in the past. So RKO, I believe, no longer exists, but CBS to a statement, is dominant. But it's an important question, because actually we haven't talked about the kind of media we want to experience now. And I want to know what you're doing beyond creating a broadband infrastructure, which is the build it and they will come, if that's your philosophy, fair enough, what you're doing to encourage creativity and innovation that will, even if you don't know what those innovations will be, create a platform that will really create new industries, which we haven't done to date? Very good question. And I think the, the key point that you're making is, is what in the industry is called convergence, the way that all the different forms of media are coming together. And um, one of the things that we have done uh, with respect to local media, which is in some ways is part of one of the sectors that's had some of the biggest challenges in recent years, is we've got rid of the cross-media ownership rules which prevent a local newspaper operator owning a local television station or owning a local radio station. And the reason for that is because what we think will happen in the future is that people will want to follow their news from their iPod to their iPad, to the web, to TV, to radio, uh, whatever the different medias, people will skate from platform to platform. And so we've, we have decided to use local media as an area to experiment by removing the regulations that make it more difficult for those media platforms to converge to see if we can be a country that nurtures a new generation of global leaders uh, when it comes to local media operations. If your experiment on removing cross-media ownership works in local media, is there an implication there that, you would, um, that these sort of regulations could be taken away in their entirety someday? Uh, well... I don't want to speculate about what would happen in the future, but what I would say is that we do believe uh, that it's important that there are checks and balances against over-concentration of media ownership, and also competition rules apply. Um, so whatever the changes you make, uh, the Competition Commission still has uh, the ability to step in if it's concerned that consumers' choice is being reduced. I mean, of course, there's always limits on uh, dominance in the marketplace, but are you still, do you still think there will be special rules for media, as opposed because of plurality of voice issues, rather than share, just simply share of market? Um, I do think uh, the media is different, because I think it's intrinsically linked to our culture. I mean, we, according to the latest Ofcom figures, we spend around half our waking hours consuming media of one sort or another, and I do think it's incredibly important. And, uh, one of the great successes of the British broadcasting sector has been the growth in homegrown media. I mean, I grew up in a world where people used to spend Saturday evenings watching Dallas and Dynasty and Heart to Heart. I'm not saying I watched any of these programmes, of course, but, um, <laughs> but, but I think that has changed now and people are consuming much more homegrown content and I think that's a very healthy thing, but I think it's also very important for our culture. I think one of the areas we can have a useful debate is this whole issue of local TV. Um, can I take... Um, 
can we group, there's just so many people want to, um, can, uh, can we group, I'll take a few questions. So what's your question on local TV, to, to, to take out any duplication? What is your question about local TV? Oh, it's not local TV. It's, I've asked about local TV. There's, what's yours, sir? And then I'm going to do a collection. Hi there, I'm Trum Sunas with the Norwegian Business Daily, trying to learn about the British media landscape. Yeah. We have some issues in Norway with local TV in when you have a, sta a strong uh, public broadcaster, uh, they are working broadly, also locally. So what's the dilemmas here in Great Britain or in England about the local media compared with the BBC? Uh, I mean, if BBC is strong locally, that would be kind of a problem for local TVs to establish, I guess. That's one, if you could make uh, notes. Any, yeah. any other local, local Richard, Richard Hallwood of Channel 6, what's your question? Uh, thanks, Ray. Um, I was interested in the, the comments Mr. about the, um, the need for a national network spine, and I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I just want to ask whether you um, agree that that spine shouldn't just be filling in the gaps between, around the local programming, but should also be an engine to generate revenues to actually support the local programming as well. Yep, a local TV question? Mine is not so much local to me, it's local to Mr. Jeremy Hunt. I understand that you're into Latin dancing. Are, you, are, there, are there any other areas in, um, in culture that you take great interest in, like painting? <laughs> or Tap could be anything, really, apart from the media, of course. Fine. Any um, other local TV? Yeah. Uh, Roger Bush, Media Society. Would the Minister agree that the famous bonfire of the Quangos should not include Ofcom, an almost totally useless regulatory body? <laughs> a, former, a former member of the IBA, if I remember correctly. <laughs> uh, any other, any, uh, any other local, local issues we'll deal with? Yeah, there's, uh, they're in the middle. Jeffrey Davis, University of Westminster. Um, I'm old enough to remember the failure of Croydon Television, of Milton Keynes, of Greenwich. Why does the minister think that it's now that the time has come for local television? Right. Do you want me to take those? Let me take those in reverse order. Sorry, is there one more similar? Local newspapers in this country, which we, I mean, probably the worst recession facing local regional papers we've ever had. Where is this news and information going to come from that's going to be broadcast? Okay, right. Well, the crisis in local newspapers has been very interesting because um, it has been a very, very tough period. Um, but as I understand it, the newspapers that have a very defined local imprint have actually done much better than newspapers that have a broad regional footprint. And I think that is because people really value what's local. And to answer, uh, Jeffrey, I didn't catch your last name, but your question about Croydon TV and Milton Keynes TV, uh, one of the reasons why local TV's never worked before is because, uh, I'm afraid it was a Conservative government, when we set up ITV in 1955, uh, we divided the country into ITV regions, um, whereas I believe that people's primary affinity is to their county or their city or their town and not to their region. And so we ended up with regional TV, which produced uh, very good quality dramas, and, um, but in terms of news, was generally too broad brush. And I think what we needed to be was much more local. 
Uh, and at the same time that we did that in America, they uh, licensed uh, 240 geographically defined areas with much, much smaller footprints. And as a result, local TV was able to take hold. Uh, Roger Bush's point about Ofcom, um, the truth is that something very, very important has changed in terms of the government's relationship with Ofcom, which is that when it comes to media policy, that is decided at the Department of Culture, Media and Sport and not at Ofcom. And uh, when I was uh, shadowing this role in opposition, we had five culture secretaries in two years. And inevitably, uh, the engine of media policy became Ofcom, where there was stability and expertise. And we've changed that. And I would say we've changed that with Ofcom's wholehearted agreement and support because they recognise that is the correct role for elected officials. Uh, Latin dancing. Lambada was my hobby. Um, unfortunately, I've got a seven-month-old son now, so I haven't been able to do um, quite as much of it as, as I would like to. And um, I'm not sure my wife's too keen about me dancing up close and personal with all, all the strangers that you would see. But um, um, I do like Latin dancing, but I like lots of other stuff. And the last thing I went to see was an extraordinary performance of King Lear by Derek Jacobi at the Donmar at the weekend. Richard uh, Hallwood, very pleased to meet you. Um, I've been trying to uh, arrange a meeting with you for a while, and um, not through... Uh, yeah, obviously, come to the LSC. Not that you've been resisting it. Just I've followed what you've been doing with great interest. And, um, his, point, that, his point was um, not just a, a holding mechanism, but the actual financial driver yes. for local. Is there any merit to that argument? There is absolutely, and for one very simple reason, that um, for my view is that for local TV franchises to be viable, they need to tap into the national advertising market, and therefore you need some kind of body that is able to sell advertising nationally, but it then appears on local TV affiliates and franchises. That's what happens in the US, and then the local affiliate sells the local advertising, but national stuff is dealt with nationally so I think there's a, that's why I think that spine is very important. And the outside of the UK view you've got the BBC, why do you what yes. else do you want? To I've um, agreed with the BBC, one of the things that was uh, made explicit in the licence fee settlement is that they won't go any more local than they are currently going because I think if the BBC used its uh, considerable resources to invest in local TV it would be very very difficult for any private entrepreneurs to have the confidence that they would be able to compete and so this is an area that I think is not for the BBC. But I have to say they are being very supportive and they are um, helping us with some of the capital costs of getting a local TV network. After having home. their arms twisted very heavily late at night. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's, let those ones... Yeah, sorry, you've been trying to get in for some time, sir. Yeah. Thank you. One of the areas that didn't come up tonight that's been very top in the news is big pay packages. The media, as well as the sport and, and the culture section, um, uh, sectors in, this, uh, in society, are renowned of having certain people on very, very high pay packages and certain people on virtually nothing. How, what are you doing to try and correct this? And uh, um, what, what steps can government take before it gets completely out of hand and we see what's going on in the banking sector happen in, in, uh, in, 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 in your department? Let's take a few more questions. They could be at any subject. What's your name, sir? And uh, this lady in the front. Yeah. Doesn't uh, we'll, we'll deal with any subject? Hi. Um, sorry. Do you mind if I stand? I've not actually got a chair. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm Laurie Penny. I'm a freelance journalist. Um, it's already been mentioned that the um, some believe that the decision to cut public public arts and humanities funding almost entirely from universities and effectively privatise Britain's universities, as recommended specifically by the, the Brown report, will lead us into a cultural wasteland. 
As Britain's cultural um, capital for the past 60 years has relied heavily on publicly, publicly funded higher education, I was wondering if I could get some comment from you on how the decision to destroy publicly funded higher education has in any way protected us from becoming a cultural desert irrigated only by the occasional burst of corporate right-wing propaganda and shit reality television. I have to remind you, as far as I know, as far as I know, as of this moment, this man is not education secretary, but never mind. Well, I'm sure he'll deal with the question. Those two, uh, two gentlemen over there, please. Hello, uh, Patrick Xavier, a shortwave listener for 50 years, I think. Uh, in view of the parlous state of the media in the United States, uh, have you any plans to restore shortwave broadcasting by the BBC to North, to North America? Very precise. And, uh, uh, over there. Ali Mabubakri, founder, This Young Mind. Um, thank you very much for your time today. Um, what I want to find out is that at the moment, it seems the business model for the conventional media is not working. What are you doing as the Secretary of State for Culture, Olympics, and Media to enhance the sustainability of the traditional media? Um, what was your name, sir? Ali Mabubakri. Ali. Okay, and the woman, that woman over there straight and pointing his way at me. Hello. Um, my name is Vivian Avramov. As a doctor, I have nothing to do with the media. But um, in view of your very proud statement, which I completely agree with, that we are very privileged to live in a country where demonstration and free speech is allowed, I was just curious to know whether you were going to meet with the, de the demonstrating students after this meeting and reply to some of their concerns, which some of us here may actually share. Uh, let's, let's, take, let's take two of these, this group of people up here and then we'll give you a time to... Oh, do you want to deal with that one question while the microphone is going? Yes. I actually met with the demonstrators before coming in here at their request and spoke to them for a few minutes. Um, and the answer is that it slightly depends on how long our questions here go on for. But um, I'm more than happy to have a sensible, civilised discussion with them about the issues that they were debating. Um, but I think, you know, they perhaps should reflect that they interrupted that debate and that made it more difficult to hold the government to account for its policy on higher education, amongst other things. And, and that's why I think if we can have a proper debate, I welcome that. That's what I went into politics to do. Let's take a round, uh, take this little raft of questions up here, and then, uh, Jeremy, you tell me when you have to go. Hugh Roberts, um, the question I was going to ask is about localism in a sense, but before I do, can I just remind people that not everything good on television came from the BBC. I'm fairly certain that Thames Television made Death on the Rock. Um, oh, sorry, Thames, no, sorry, there was no, yeah, we, I hope you didn't I, say otherwise. Or I, thought, otherwise. I, thought I, was, I thought I heard that it came from the BBC. No, it was what, Richard Dunn took the well, heat from the government. Well, what occurred was Thames Television made it. Mrs. T made it quite clear she wasn't happy for it to be on air. Yes. It was Ed and Thames lost their licence. Three unrelated statements. Yes. But the question I had was, was, uh, was about localism. I share your view that localism is really, really important. You suspect from my accent that I'm not local to this part of the UK. In the very rushed negotiations to sort out the, uh, the license fee settlement. Do you regret that while you quickly rammed S4C into the pannier of the bikers, uh, Mr. Thompson wobbled back to Broadcasting House, there wasn't time to ring anybody in Cardiff to mention it to them? Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. And, uh, yeah, the, 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 young, 
Varun Sitaram, London Borough of Enfield and LSE alumnus. I just wondered, uh, with local TV, whether you saw a role for local authorities, maybe as a regulatory function or something else, uh, and what you have to say about that. And the, and the general behind... Um, ben Sahangi, I'm an LSE student. Um, I teach debating in underperforming schools in London, and uh, that, as part of uh, the cultural mandate, we go through various things. Now, uh, there's budding journalists, historians, English students, and everything that they're only 13, 14, and 15, and they've been put off going to university to pursue these degrees. Now, the tuition fee debate aside, can the government do anything to re-encourage and re-incentivise these students to go? I'm not arguing about the tuition fee thing, just to encourage these students that it's still worth pursuing these things. That's okay. more than enough to you. Um, well, on that last point, I'm a passionate believer in uh, not just people staying for as long as possible in education, but lifelong learning. I don't think learning is a process that should stop when you leave university. Um, to get to the nub of the question, um, America, which has uh, an even more privatised system than we have, actually has a higher proportion of school leavers going on to university, but they have a problem with dropout rates. So I'm not saying their system um, is better or we want to go down that route, but I don't think the evidence is that going down the route that we're going down is actually going to put people off going to university, and I think, and I would very, very much hope that it doesn't. Um, sorry? It was the arts. Is People yeah. being put off from going uh, to, to study the arts. And well, I, I mean, you know, I think we have one of the best cultural offers in the world, and we have some fantastic cultural education. I, I don't see why it should do that either. I mean, I think that the, the funding arrangements are designed to make sure that for all subjects, our universities get proper funding. Um, the gentleman from Enfield and the LSE, um, I'm nervous about local authorities having a role in regulating local TV because I really want local TV to hold local authorities to account in the same way that national TV holds the government to account. So um, I think that's one of the key things that we have to work out, that if they do have a regulatory role, it should not be in a way that makes it more difficult for local TV stations to uh, do the sort of Jeremy Paxman, John Humphrey's job on local politicians. Um, Hugh Roberts' question on S4C. I am a very strong supporter of Welsh language broadcasting. I think S4C has an incredibly important role to play. Um, the truth is that it was in very, very big trouble. Uh, their audience had more than halved in the last 10 years. And um, I don't think they were doing a good job for the Welsh language. And what I think we've got is a solution that gives them secure resource for the period of the spending review, but also the support of the nation's preeminent broadcaster in helping them to work out how they can do a better job, but maintaining their editorial independence, their distinct identity, and the things that matter very much. So I really hope we've got a good solution with S4C. Secretary of State, the question was more precise than that. Why did nobody bother to call Cardiff to inform them of the decision? Well, we did call Cardiff to inform them of the decision. Um, but, uh, but um, well, the answer is we had, I had had significant discussions with S4C about the way forward before that licence fee discussion. It is true that you know, I wasn't able to consult with them about the precise nature of the deal, um, although in fact um, you know, 
there have been very good discussions between S4C and the BBC and the government subsequent to that to work out a, a good way forward. But it's not the case that we didn't have any contact with S4C before the licence fee decision. We had a lot of contact and indeed S4C submitted a document which was their proposed way forward um, to get through their difficulties. I wasn't satisfied that that was going to be successful and that's why I went for a different solution. And there was a couple, Sorry, couple of I'm very just, precise questions yes, over here um, about shortwave. Alima's question about yes. enhancing the sustainability of traditional media. I think we have to look at a, a lighter touch, more deregulatory model than we currently have. I think we have to recognise that in a, in a world where um, someone like ITV, for example, had, um, uh, you know, was, was part of an oligopoly, it was all right to pile lots of public service broadcasting obligations on them. We're in a different place now, and so um, I'm, I'm not sympathetic to the restrictions on the way that they sell their airtime uh, contract rights renewal regime, for example. But I think we have to allow them to move faster and be more flexible in embracing... Can you do anything about CRR um, with your new business hat on? Uh, I, that's a very good question, and I think the answer is yes, I can. Um, ah, does that mean you intend to? Um, I certainly will be looking at it, yes. Um, um, and Patrick um, Xavier's question about BBC broadcasting to North America, they already do. There's BBC America, which is actually very successful in America. Uh, Laurie Penny's very articulate question about uh, the cultural desert that she fears that we're walking into, quite the opposite. Uh, we need to sustain the cultural riches that we have, and that's why we're taking the very difficult decisions that we're taking to put the economy back on track, to make sure that higher education is properly funded, to make sure the arts are properly funded. But I don't want to pretend that these aren't very difficult decisions and that many students will have to pay more for their higher education as a result of one particular reform and that the arts are going to go through a difficult period. So I don't want to pretend that it's not going to be difficult, but I think if we ducked those decisions, the outlook will be much more of a cultural desert than, than what we've done. And finally, um, big pay packages... One of the surprises uh, for me on coming into office is that I managed to sustain a, a relatively cordial relationship with Mark Thompson despite saying so much about his huge pay package um, at the BBC when I was in opposition. Um, I think that the BBC in particular is getting the message. They've already said they're going to be reducing executive pay by 25% over the next couple of years, which is a, a substantial reduction. But I think that across the public sector, where it's the public sector, uh, we need to understand where taxpayers are, taxpayers who are paying our salaries, and we need to understand that they are not in the business of paying high salaries, and therefore we need to show sensible restraint. Well, uh, private sector, I make, a division I make a division between the banks and the rest of the private sector. That's quite a big discussion to go into, but I, I think the banks need to show uh, much more restraint than they have been because they were so instrumental in causing uh, or making the financial crisis a great deal worse than it might have been. I'm, I'm afraid we're into the last few questions. These, these two gentlemen here, the, the shirt ads here, so these three, right. and then we'll see, but that might be it. Um, Jed Sagar of uh, Change Banks organisation. Um, why do you think the Sun's decision to support uh, David Cameron was seen as such a pivotal event in the run-up to the last general election? And how important do you think it is to David Cameron to uh, maintain the support of the Sun and the other 
conservative supporting media and how much of your time do you have to devote personally to engaging with editors and proprietors to maintain that support <laughs> the second half particularly interesting and yes and then here um, and then I'm afraid we're probably going to I'm, I'm going to be hogged out uh, and there five questions and that's it yeah sorry that's it uh, my name's Hethcote Riven. Um, you talk about BBC getting the message, and as we've seen recently, I, I kind of just wanted to ask about what that message was exactly, um, apart from just cuts in more for less. As we've seen recently, both in the US with the tragic events of uh, Gabriel Gifford, and also explored by John Pilger in his fantastic recent film, The War You Don't See, which if you haven't seen it, suggest you do. Um, that film suggests that Iraq might not have happened in such a like a deadly way if uh, the media coverage had been more balanced. Um, I think we can all agree that uh, unbalanced news coverage can have fatal effects on a small and large scale. America's coverage is not balanced, it causes fatalities. What do you think of the newest news channels and what kind of news coverage do you want to see here in relation to America? And along here, please. Yeah, and we'll just take two more. One there and one there. David Walter, President of the Media Society. What value do you put on the soft diplomacy role of the BBC World Service, and is there a danger that it'll be eroded by the BBC settlement? Uh, microphone over to here, and then we'll take this back with a microphone. Yeah. Uh, Secretary of State, to return to S4C, um, why wasn't the Secretary of State for Wales present with you at those negotiations? Why wasn't she sitting alongside you at those meetings? Why did she appear to be in blissful ignorance of anything that was going on? Why, in fact, did you publicly humiliate her? Uh, that's precise. Um, <laughs> Patrick Casey from the website fullfact.org. Um, given the withdrawal of Northern and Shelf and Press Complaints Commission, would you say you're 100% satisfied with the uh, voluntary system of self-regulation for the press? Okay. A few media ones to finish up with. Right. Um, well, let's do those in reverse order. First of all, I think that uh, Richard Desmond or Northern Shell's decision to withdraw from the PCC is a curious one because um, I would have thought the last thing he would want is statutory regulation of the press. And um, by undermining the system of self-regulation, um, he risks bringing that a step closer. So I think it's a curious and uh, regrettable decision. Um, with respect to S4C... Um, I mean, the Secretary of State for Wales was not sitting by my side uh, during the BBC licence fee negotiations, but she was very, very closely involved. I had endless, dis I don't want to say that in a pejorative way, I had lengthy discussions with the Secretary <laughs> of State for Wales about S4C, um, and she, um, she fought a very, very effective battle to make sure that across the whole of government, people understood the vital strategic significance of S4C. She did a fantastic job. Um, David Waters' question on soft diplomacy of the BBC World Service. I think the deal we have, whereby the BBC World Service is now going to be wholly funded by the BBC, will strengthen the credibility of the BBC World Service because its funding will come through the arm's length mechanism of the licence fee rather than directly from the Foreign Office budget. So I think we've got a very good deal for the future of the BBC World Service and, um, and, I, and I hope that uh, its future will be very, very bright indeed. Certainly the government is wholly committed to it. Um, Hethcote's question about impartiality, I think sort of to sum it up was, you know, are we going to bring Fox News to Britain? And the answer is no, we're not. We have uh, impartiality regulations in the Broadcasting Code, which we are committed to keeping. 
Um, and I think people do value the fact that we have balanced news coverage that are policed by very strict impartiality regulations. Um, and then um, Jess, Jess Dacre's question, uh, oh, no, how much time do I spend closing up to editors and proprietors to get them to uh, vote Tory? Well, the answer is that I spend um, time with all editors and proprietors, whether or not they supported the Conservatives at the last election, um, because that's my job as Culture Secretary. I spend a huge amount of time with the BBC, and I think my Conservative colleagues would fall off their seats if they thought there was any suggestion that I thought that was going to mean that there was going to be any support from the BBC for the Conservative Party. I spend, you know, it is my job to spend time with media proprietors and media owners because I'm responsible for media policy. Um, the significance of the Sun backing the Conservatives. I, I think you can overstate that significance. In the last election, when the Sun was backing Labour, 35% of Sun readers voted Conservative. And I think Sun readers are quite capable of making up their own minds as to who they vote for. And so, um, you know, what we are interested in is, is the Sun readers. Um, and, you know, that is far, far more important than any editorial endorsement. And, you know, I just... There have been a lot of questions about this. I just simply say, the Sun supported Labour in 1997, 2001, 2005. Maybe, just maybe, the reason that they switched to the Conservatives in 2010 was they thought that the government then was tired and had run out of ideas, and that's what many people in the country thought as well. And I don't think you should read any more into it than that. Um, and finally, um, there was a question about bankers, and I'm afraid I can't quite remember what it was. Was it Jess... Somebody asked a question about banks. It was high pay in the media, but I immediately oh, thought, not really, compared with bankers. You know. Okay, um, anyway, um, I'm afraid I don't know what no, the question was. One, so. No, only one, I'm afraid. Last question. That man has been really putting his hands up for ages, and I'm sorry about the rest, but I, I've been told... Uh, yes, you got it. Thank you. Um, you admit that Rupert Murdoch was disappointed with the BBC licence fee settlement. I was wondering if he made his displeasure known to you personally, and if so, how? Um, well, um, I think I bumped into him at a lecture shortly afterwards when uh, we were both in the audience, and, uh, and he indicated to me that he was very unhappy with the BBC licence fee settlement. So, uh, what, were the, what were the precise words used? Um, I think it was more a question of facial expressions. Hobby, <laughs> um, uh, did Hobby and Bastard come into it? Yeah, yeah. He certainly didn't use any words like that. And I saved the most difficult question for you for the last, the very last. Is it true that your first business failure in life was trying to export marmalade to China? Uh, no, it was trying to export marmalade to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where it went wrong. Yes. You chose the wrong country. Secretary of State, thank you very much. Thank indeed. you. <laughs>